Good morning. My name is Mark. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at Calvary. I'm often at the Erie campus doing men's ministry and global outreach work among the three campuses, but it's good to be here this morning and to open God's word together. I would encourage you to grab a Bible this morning because we're going to be in Judges 6 to 8, and we won't have all the text up on the screen. Um, we're going to be going through the story, though, and it's a great way to follow along if you have it open, because I'll point out the verses that you can take a look at as we go through. So we're continuing in this series, Unsung Heroes, where we're looking at lesser-known figures throughout the Bible. And the figure we're looking at today, you may have heard of before, but his name is Gideon. And whether you've heard his story before or not, my hope is that this morning you would learn something new about doubt and faith. Because that's the topic we're going to be talking about this morning. Doubt and faith from Judges 6 through 8. Now, we can probably all resonate with the questions, God, why is this happening right now? Why is this happening right now? And where are you? Why am I going through this crisis? Why am I experiencing this pain? Why am I experiencing this hardship in my life right now? And where are you? Are you present in the midst of my suffering? Do you care? Do you see what I'm going through right now? Do you see what we are going through right now? Why is this happening and where are you? And our figure today, Gideon, really begins his story asking God these questions. God, where are you and why is this happening? We're going to begin in Judges 6.1 and it sets the scene for us and gives us a picture of what's happening at the beginning of this story. So Judges 6.1 says this, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. There's a cycle that goes throughout the book of Judges, and the cycle changes a little bit as you go through the book, but a general cycle is this, that the people of God were once slaves in Egypt, and they're now brought into this land, the promised land, where they're supposed to dwell with God, where God is to be their God, and they are to be his people. But there's a problem, and so this cycle keeps on occurring, where they're in the land, and they're supposed to live with God, but they keep forgetting about God. Because they forget about God, they turn around, they look at the gods of the nations around them, the idols of the nations around them, and they begin to worship those gods rather than their God. And then the cycle goes that after they turn and look and worship these other gods, that God will raise up an enemy who will overtake Israel, and they'll be in this desperate circumstances, these desperate streets, and then they'll call out to God for help. And God will raise up a judge, a ruler, a deliverer, someone who come and free the people. But then once they're free, what happens? They forget about God. They begin to worship other gods. And they begin to be overtaken by their enemy. And they, the same cycle repeats. And so I think of the book of Judges almost like a bad song on repeat. But while you keep, keep listening to it, it's like someone keeps cranking up the volume and keep, things keep getting worse throughout the book of Judges. And we're in about the middle of that book in terms of the judges who appear. And Gideon is our figure here. And this is what's happening. The, the people of Israel have forgotten God. And their enemy is Midian, this 
enemy Midian was this uh, army, this enemy who would come into their town and they were camping out against them. And they would come and they would raid their lands. They would come, they would take their sheep, their ox, their donkey. They would take their food. And so Israel is now in this desperate circumstance where their enemy is seven years now, and it's going into the eighth year, has been camping out against them, raiding the land, taking their goods, and leaving them in this desperate circumstances. And this is where God then appears to our figure, Gideon, today. Verse 11 talks about Gideon, and it says that the angel of the Lord, who's often identified with Yahweh, God himself, the angel of the Lord identify, or comes to Gideon while he's beating out wheat in a wine press to hide it from the Midianites. Now, you might not know a lot about ancient uh, culture, but you can probably guess what is a wine press used for? Wine, right? Why is Gideon doing what he's doing here then? He's beating out wheat. Something is off. Normally, the place he would beat out wheat would be a threshing floor. But Gideon is here beating out wheat in a wine press. And the reason for this is that a, wheat, um, a threshing floor would have been this open space where they would have processed wheat. But a wine press would have been hewed out from a rock. So what's happening is God's appearing to Gideon while he's kind of in hiding. He's afraid. He's uncertain, likely afraid for his own life, afraid that the enemy's going to come and take him over, and likely afraid that he's going to lose his meal, that this wheat is going to be stolen. So this is the circumstances that God appears to Gideon in. And so the angel of the Lord appears to Gideon in verse 12 and says this, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. But Gideon says to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, in verse 13, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. You hear what Gideon's saying? God, if you are with us, why has this happened? And where are you? We've heard about your great deeds. We heard about how your people weren't slaves in Egypt, and you brought them out, but we're here, and our enemy is overtaking us. Where are you? Where are all your great and wonderful deeds? Because I don't see it right now. So in verse 14, the Lord says to Midian, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Did I not send you? And Gideon responds, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. But God promises Gideon, I will be with you. I will be with you. And so Gideon asked then for a sign, a sign to know that it's really God who's going to be with him, that he's really speaking to the angel of the Lord. So he says, I want a sign that it's really you. I want to have confidence. And so Gideon prepares a sacrifice and gives it to the angel of the Lord, and the angel of the Lord reaches out the tip of his staff and consumes this sacrifice. And Gideon realizes that this is the angel of the Lord. And in verse 22, he says, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Gideon's been given his mission. He believes that he's seen the angel of the Lord, that he has been commissioned by God himself for this task. And so it's time to bring about reform, to bring about change, to free them from their enemies. But before they do that, Gideon's going to have to deal with an issue in his own nation. And that's the fact that his people have begun to worship other gods, specifically a god named Baal. 
and another god named Asherah. And they've begun to worship and sacrifice to these gods. And so God tells Gideon, here's what you need to do. You need to go and pull down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah pole that's beside it, this religious worship site. Then you need to offer a bull on an altar that you construct there. So these people are worshiping another god. He says, no, no, you're going to go and you're going to change that. You're going to make that a place of worship to me. And so we're told that Gideon does this, but in verse 27, we're told that Gideon does this at night. And he does it at night because he's afraid. He says he's actually afraid of his own family, his dad being involved in this sort of idol worship, um, in this sort of altar worship. He's afraid of his own family, and he's afraid of the men of the town, so he does it by night. But the next morning, everyone wakes up, and they see what's happened. They see that the, a bull has been offered on the altar, and the people begin to ask, who did this? Who did this? They begin to search, who is the one who has done this? And the word gets out that it's Gideon, that Gideon is the one who has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah pole and offered a sacrifice in its place. And the people want to put him to death. But here's where Gideon's dad comes to his aid. Even though his dad has been involved in this sort of worship, Gideon's dad says this, look, if Baal's really a god, let Baal deal with Gideon. Let Baal contend against him. If Baal's torn down his altar, let Baal do his own work on Gideon. And this is where Gideon gets his nickname, which is Jerubbabel. Jerubbabel, which is a, maybe a, a hard say name or an odd sounding name, but what it means is this, let Baal contend against him. Let Baal contend against him. His dad kind of putting him in defense here, putting, defending Gideon to the people. And so Gideon, having done this, is now prepared to go and fight against their enemy. The Midianites, the Amalekites, the people of the east, this massive army has camped out against them. But before Gideon goes into battle, he wants another sign that God's really with him. He wants to know that victory is actually going to come. And so in verse 36, we see that Gideon asks the Lord for another sign. He says, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor where, where they would have processed the grain. He says, if there is dew on the fleece alone and it is dry on all the ground, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. If this fleece of wool is wet and the ground's dry, God, then I'll know that you're with me. It will be a sign to me. And so God does it. But Gideon still isn't quite convinced. So Gideon says, okay, let's reverse the sign, God. Let's, let's flip it. This time, I want the fleece of wool to be dry, but on the ground, let it be wet. Don't be angry with me, but just give me one more sign. And God does it again, giving him a third sign. And so Gideon, after this, goes with his men. They camp out against their enemy, and they prepare for their battle. But before they go into battle, God does something somewhat unexpected. God tells Gideon, you have too many people in your army. Normally, that wouldn't be an issue for a commander as they're going into battle, but God says, you have too many people. What's interesting here is that the enemy they're going against is probably about 135,000 people, but Israel has about 32,000. They have way less, but God says, you have too many. And so this is what he says, whoever's afraid, let them go home. And we're told that this army of 32,000 then dwindles down to 10,000. But in verse 4, the Lord says again to Gideon, the people are still too many. The people are still too many. 
10,000 is too many against 135,000, Gideon. Because I know that if they go into battle and they get victory, they will think that the victory is theirs when it actually belongs to the Lord. They're too many. They would take the credit for it. So he says, let's, let's bring it down again. Let's dwindle this army down once more. So they go to the water and they do this test. Whoever laps up the water, we're told like a dog, licking it up from his hands, picking up the water and drinking it, they're to be kept. But whoever kneels down to drink the water is to go home. And those who lap the water like a dog are 300 men. And with these 300 men, God decides that they have the right size army to go into battle, that these 300 men won't take the credit, but that God will get the victory. Now it's the night before the battle, and the Lord tells Gideon before he goes into battle that victory is his. But he also tells him, but Gideon, if you're afraid to go into battle, if you're afraid, you should go down to the enemy's camp, and, and you're going to hear something that will strengthen you for this battle. And so Gideon takes his servant Pharaoh with him. They go down into the camp, and while they're there, they hear one of their enemies talking to another comrade, talking about a dream that they had. And it says, I, the comrade's saying, I had this dream that there was this cake of barley that came down through the camp, and it smashed the tent and turned it upside down. And the comrade in Judges 7.14 says, this is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. Gideon's hearing his enemy proclaim victory, saying that Gideon's going to have the victory. And so we're told in verse 15 that Gideon worships. And he goes and he gets his men and says, okay, it's time to go into battle. It's time. The Lord's given us victory. Let's go into battle. And he gives them the battle plans, the marching plans. And so he takes his 300 men. He divides them into troops of 100. And he gives them torches, which are uh, in jars, as well as trumpets and a plan of what they're going to do. He says, wait for my cue. And so they're in their camps. They're around. They surround their enemy in these three camps. And then it's time. And what they do is this. Gideon at first has his company break the jars and blow the trumpets. And then all three companies break their jars, blow the trumpets, and shout a sword for the Lord and a sword for Gideon. And all of a sudden, their enemy just turns on each other. Man against man, striking each other down in the camp with their swords. Their own uh, enemy is fighting each other. They're just on the outskirts, and their enemy begins to flee. And so they track down the princes of Midian, and they defeat them. And then eventually the story goes on as they track down the kings of Midian and defeat them. And this is the story of Gideon and how God gives Israel victory through Gideon and the 300 men, how God ultimately gets the victory uh, in this battle. And the question we want to ask then is, looking at the story of Gideon, what do we learn? What do we actually take away from a story like this? The first thing we see in this story, or one thing that we see in this story, is that the circumstances are really bleak for Gideon when things first start out. He's, he's in hiding, likely afraid of his own, for his own life. This is a time of crisis. It's a time of uncertainty and fear. And it would have taken a lot of faith for Gideon to go forward in the assignments that he's given, to go down and, and tear down the altar and to uh, go into battle with just 300 men. These, these would have taken a lot of courage. We're told that the army that he goes against is like locust in abundance. That's how to describe this massive horde of locusts. And their camels were like the sand of the seashore. 
So it's without number. And so this, this massive army, which we said would have been in probably about 135,000, and Gideon has just 32,000. It would have taken a lot of faith to go into battle. But even with those odds, God says, you have too many people. Now, if I was in Gideon's situation, I might have almost wanted to say, hey, God, let's do the math here for a second. 135,000, 32,000. Actually, the people with them, that's too many. They have too many people. You, you should recruit some more people to my side or, or deal with some of the people on their side. They have too many. And when he trims it down to, and so it's a one to four ratio right there. It's about 32,000 to 135,000. But when he trims it down to 10,000, all of a sudden the men of Israel are outnumbered about 13 to one. At that point, you might say, hey, God, this is, we're not too many now. This is surely going to be your victory. Everyone will know that you get the victory because it's 13 to 1. The odds are not in our favor, but God says still too many. Not until there's just 300 men. Then the ratio at that point is about 450 enemies to every single Israelite man. God's making a very clear statement. If there's going to be a victory, he is the one who's going to get the credit. Yet even the way they go into battle shows that God is the one who gets the victory. Think about what they do to accomplish victory. They blow trumpets and smash jars and yell. They do hardly anything, and their enemy is just completely overturned. Not only is it just 300 people, but those 300 men hardly do anything. So the story of Gideon isn't about 300 strapping men who are so brave and so mighty and, and so just strong that their enemy couldn't stand against them. It's a story about how God brings victory. But you could also imagine how much faith would it have taken to go into this battle? What might have appeared like a march to your own death. And yet here what we have is an example of faith in Gideon. When he goes into this battle, the odds are 450 to 1, yet he trusts in this bleak circumstances, through the hardship they've been going through, that God is going to deliver his people. That God's word is not going to fail. And in our own lives, there's going to be times where it does feel this way. It feels like the odds are stacked against us. Like we don't have hope for God's word to come through. We have such great hope. We have such great promises from God, but it seems impossible. The odds might feel 450 to 1. Even as we just think about the things that have gone on in our world on a global level, we see war going on in our world. We see pandemic. We see economic instability. We see crises in our own nation and hardship. In our own lives, we have all sorts of challenges and difficulties and griefs and trials. At times, it feels like, is God's word really going to come true? Is there really hope? Can I trust God in the middle of these circumstances? We might begin to wonder, God, where are you? And why is this happening? Like we've heard about your great deeds. We heard about how you once saved a people out of slavery in Egypt. We've heard about Jesus. We heard about how Jesus healed the sick. He raised the dead. He dealt with the outcasts and the shamed in society. But we might say, God, I don't feel that in my life. You don't feel present. You don't feel near. I'm not seeing your power at work right now. Where are you? Why is this happening? Yet in the midst of all that, what we have before us today is an example of what faith looks like in those bleak circumstances. Gideon was someone who trusted God when things were dark, and God used him for great purposes. 
And the same is true for us, that there might be times in our life where God uses us, and this is our hope as Christians, that we believe this, that God will use us for his great purposes when things are dark and uncertain through our faith. And so the first lesson that we get from this story is the faith of Gideon, that we should be like Gideon. He was a person who had great faith in a time of uncertainty and trusted God. So the first point that we learn from this is that we should be like Gideon, which leads us naturally to our second point, which is that we should not be like Gideon. Now, I intentionally left some details out from Gideon's story because, to be honest, Gideon is not the perfect example of faith. He has faith, but he is also someone who struggles in a lot of ways. And one of the ways that Gideon is characterized throughout this story is by doubt, as well as generational failure. We see the doubt of Gideon in the fact that he asked for three signs from God. He asked for the first sign, and he, this is the offering, the sacrifice that the angel of the Lord consumes. But even after that, what does Gideon do? He obeys God at night. He's afraid of what people will think of him. He, he's afraid of losing his life. He's afraid of his own family and the men of the town. He, he's a doubtful and uncertain character. He, he's, he's afraid. But this isn't the end of Gideon's doubting. He asked God for the sign with the fleece. And he says, okay, God, if you're really with me, can you put dew on the fleece and make the ground dry? Then he asks, can you flip the sign? And you might be wondering, what's going on with the fleece of wool and the dew? But something really important to remember is Gideon's nickname. Gideon's nickname is Jerubbabel, which is let Baal contend against him. And during this time, Baal was known as the god who controlled dew. He was known as this mighty warrior, a fierce god who controlled dew, and even one of his own daughters was named Dew. So think about for a moment what Gideon's actually doing here. When he's saying, can you put dew on the fleece? Can you put dew on the ground? He's wanting confirmation that God is going to defend him and that God is actually more powerful than Baal. He says, they've named me, let Baal contend against him, Jerubbabel. But God, I need to know what's going to happen if he does. Are you going to be with me? Are you present? Are you powerful? Are you more powerful than Baal? Because you've sent me on this mission, and I now have enemies, and I need to know that you're not going to leave me in the middle of this, that you're going to get me through. He's afraid. He's uncertain. He needs assurance from God in his doubt and his struggles. But not only is Gideon marked by some uncertainty and fear and doubt, he also has a poor legacy. After this battle, the people come and they say, Gideon, we want you and your offspring to rule over us. We want you to be kind of like our, our king, our king, our ruler. But Gideon in Judges 8.23 says this. He says, I will not rule over you and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Now, on the face of it, Gideon just nailed the test. He gave the right answer. Gideon should not appoint himself as king. That's not his role, and he shouldn't accept the people appointing him as king. However, even though Gideon rejects the role of being made king, rightly, because that's God's role, to make the king and to decide the king, he goes on in his life to kind of act like a bad king, to do the things that kings are told not to do, 
particularly a couple of, couple of things that kings are told not to do in Deuteronomy 17, where God gives the law and the ethics of how kings should act. Two things that are big no-nos for kings. One is don't get a bunch of wives or get a bunch of gold. Don't get a bunch of wives. Second is don't get a bunch of gold. And Gideon does both of those. Gideon acquires for himself a lot of wives, and he acquires for himself a lot of gold. And with the gold, we're told in Judges 8, 27, that he makes this golden ephod. And there, in his hometown, he puts it. And people begin, we're told, that all Israel hoard after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his own family. This is Gideon, Jerubbabel, the one who contended against false worship, who's now leading Israel into false worship. It's a snare to him and to his family. He's going back to the ways of his father, and he's leading his children astray, worshiping this ephod. And the ephod would have been a garment that is worn by a priest in their temple, worship, in their temple sacrifice and worship. And so Gideon, Gideon goes back into these old ways, and there's 40 years of rest in the land after Gideon gives them victory. But we're told in Judges 8.33 that as soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal bereath their God. They forget God. They turn away. And they soon are worshiping other gods once again. So just like that, Gideon's legacy is gone. And then just to top it off, he has a son through one of his concubines, and the name of this son is Abimelech. And if you remember, Gideon said, I'm not going to be your king. I'm not going to be your ruler. But Abimelech, his son, gets the name Abimelech. And Abimelech means, my father is king. And Abimelech, in his own life, after Gideon dies, goes on his own conquest to become king. And it ends in his own demise and defeat. But in that conquest, he also kills his 70 brothers. And all but one of the sons, Jotham, escapes. And so if you were to do a Bible study on lessons on generational leadership, I would not encourage Gideon as a positive example. His own legacy is a failure. He leads his family astray. And that leaves us in an odd position in this story, because we have to ask the question then, if, if Gideon's not the hero of this story, then who is? Who's, who's the hero of this story? But I think the answer to that is clear as you read it, that the hero of this story is God. Isn't that the reason why God whittles down the army from 32,000 just to 300? Because he wants to make it abundantly clear that the victory is not Gideon's, but it's God's. And this is the way it happens throughout all of Scripture. The one great hero throughout all of the word is God. God is constantly the one saving his people, restoring his people. And we see this most clearly in his son, Jesus Christ, who is Emmanuel, God with us. He's the leader who can actually bring lasting peace to his people. Gideon brings peace for 40 years to his people, but Jesus Christ comes as the leader and as the Savior who can actually bring lasting peace to his people. And it's good news for us that God is not like Gideon. He is someone who can truly lead us when we need to be led, who, who can keep his people together. And yet there are positive aspects. There are positive aspects of Gideon's faith in this story. So I think we could consider Gideon still a hero in this story. But if we do so, we'd, we'd do Gideon as a small-age hero. 
And God is the big H, all caps, bold-faced hero of this story. God is the ultimate hero of this story. But the incredible thing is that because God is the hero, he is also able to use people like Gideon as heroes in this story. Simple, ordinary, flawed characters who nonetheless God is able to use for his extraordinary purposes. This is the grace of God on display. So I think we can call Gideon a hero. Not the ultimate hero of the story, but someone who is truly used by God in this story. So it's accurate on one hand to say that we should be like Gideon because we see his faith and he does have faith in this story. But it's also accurate to say on one hand that we shouldn't be like Gideon because he struggles in many ways and there's things we don't want to repeat in his life. But what brings us all together is just realizing that at the end of the day, we are like Gideon. That we are like Gideon. Who are we? We're flawed, ordinary, simple people who God is able to use for his extraordinary purposes. Just think about Gideon for a moment. He struggles with doubt. But what follower of Jesus has never struggled with doubt? But what I think is important in this story is not just to notice that Gideon is someone who struggles with doubt, but to notice how does God deal with the doubt of Gideon? Because God could have easily just said, hey, look, Gideon, I am God. I've sent you on a mission. Either you're in or you're out, but just listen to me. I'm God. You don't need another sign. Listen to me. But think about the fact that God condescends to Gideon's need. And that three times he gives Gideon a sign that he's with him. Three times. What's the most astounding to me is the fourth sign that doesn't even seem to be prompted by Gideon. This fourth sign we see in Judges 7, 9 through 11, where it's the night before the battle. And Gideon might be fearful. He might be uncertain. He might be afraid. We've already seen his track record that he's someone who's not quite sure if God is there. He's not quite sure if God's going to get him through his challenges. And God tells Gideon in Judges 7, 9 to arise. He says, go down to the camp for I've given it to you. He's saying, victory is yours, Gideon. But then he says in verse 10, but if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pur, your servant. And you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. And this is where Gideon goes down to the camp, and he hears his enemy proclaiming victory. But think about what's happening here for a moment. He hasn't even asked for a sign that we can see, but God is saying, here, Gideon, I know who you are. I know that you're feeble. I know that you're uncertain. I know that you struggle with doubt. And if you are afraid, I want to strengthen your faith. Go down against your enemy and hear what they're going to say. God is like a loving father approaching his son in this story, picking him up, helping him learn how to walk. And the question we want to ask then is, how do we think God deals with us in our weaknesses? How does God deal with us in our doubts and uncertainty? Maybe doubt is specifically the thing you struggle with. Is God just ready to say, hey, listen, you, you've heard what I've said. Why don't you believe? Is he just at the end of his rope, ready to be angry, to crush you, to bring down the hammer? Or is he gracious and merciful? Is he like the God that we see in the story? Is his heart gracious and merciful to his people and their weaknesses? We see, again, the heart of God towards someone in doubt when we look at the story of Jesus and Thomas. Jesus being the fullest expression of God to us, the fullest way that we can understand who God is. 
And one of Jesus' followers was named Thomas, and Thomas walked with Jesus for years. But when Jesus died and rose from the dead, Thomas had a hard time believing. He said, basically, I'm I'm not going to believe unless I can see and touch him. But Jesus approaches Thomas. And John 20, 27 says, see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. He invites him to see and touch. That's how he deals with his own disciple who for years has walked with him, should have known better, and yet didn't. He invites him to see and to touch. And I know that we can't physically see and touch Jesus today. And Jesus said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. But it's also true that the same heart that Jesus has towards Thomas in this story is the same heart that Jesus has towards his people today in their doubt. It's the same heart that we see from God to Gideon. This is the heart of God towards his people when they struggle with doubt, that he is actually able to strengthen us in our doubt. And so one of of the dangers when we struggle with doubt is that we feel almost like we have to move away from God. We want to get some distance, get a, get a break, move away from God, deal with our doubt on our own, and then maybe we can come back and we can be used by God. But really in this story, we see that when we have doubt, the best place to be is in the presence of God. Because who's actually able to deal with our doubt? Who's actually able to strengthen our doubt? God. Where, where else would you go for the strength to, to, for your feeble doubt? Or, or when you're struggling with doubt, where else can you go? The best place to be is actually in the presence of God with our doubt. It doesn't mean that, that prayer and reading the Bible is always just going to immediately solve our problems or that being in community is always going to solve our problems, but the truth is there's no better place to be than with God and with his people in the midst of our doubt. That's the place that we can move, that God is the one who can give us grace and mercy and kindness and who can deal gently with us in our doubt. God was able to strengthen a doubting Gideon to take on this massive army with just 300 men. He was able to strengthen a doubting Thomas to deal with his doubt and to carry on his ministry and be faithful in his mission. And he's able to strengthen us in our doubts today. And what we see in the story is the heart of God towards his people in their doubt. Now, if you're really wondering if Gideon's a hero in this story, I have good news for you. That's the Hebrews 11.32, which some people call the Hall of Faith because it lists all these people of faith throughout history who have waited and looked for the Messiah, Jesus, who have been waiting for this hope, who have lived by faith throughout history. It lists Gideon. And the author of Hebrews says this. He says, And what more shall I say, as he's telling about all these great heroes of faith, for time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, saying, what more shall I say? I wish I could tell you. I wish I could go on, but time would fail me to tell you of the great faith of Gideon. Gideon. Gideon struggled with faith. He's not a perfect character, but he goes down in history as someone who has put their faith in God's word and his promises. He's in. This is encouraging for me. This is encouraging for us. Knowing that we have a God who is gracious towards his people. The truth is that we are imperfect characters, not in every way that Gideon is, but we all have our own imperfections, our own weaknesses, our own doubts, our own uncertainties. And I want to give an encouragement for that as we come to an end. Because sometimes I think that we can think of the weaknesses that we have as this reason that God can't use us. But think about the story of Gideon. 
why was God going to whittle down the army just to 300 men? Because he wanted to make it abundantly clear that the victory was not Gideon's, but it was God's. And might it be that in some of our weaknesses that we've been praying for help in, that we've been asking for change in, might it be that some of those weaknesses are actually ways that God is going to make it abundantly clear when he uses your life, when he transforms you, when he uses you for his purposes, that the victory is not yours, but it belongs to God? So today we have hope because we can approach God. We see his heart towards us in our weakness. We see his heart towards us in our doubt and in our uncertainty. We see that he is able to use simple, ordinary people for his extraordinary purposes. So if you're struggling with doubt, if you're weak, if you're uncertain today, the best place we can go is to God and to his son, Jesus Christ, who can strengthen us in our time of need. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Thank you for your heart that we see on display in this story of graciously condescending to an uncertain character and yet using him for your purposes, Lord. I just pray for us here today that we would know that this is your heart, that you are a God who is kind, understanding towards your people, and that you can use us for your purposes. I pray that the weaknesses that we have today, Lord, would be brought before you, brought before you, and we'd trust you and ask you to use us for your purposes. We thank you that you bring salvation to the undeserving, and you allow us to share in extraordinary things that you're doing in the world. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen us in our faith, you would give us joy in your word, and that you would help us draw near to you today. In Jesus' name, amen.